The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, a special edition as we conclude our fourth series looking at some of the highlights. We've enjoyed an array of Australia's finest in this series. The rock star of winemaking, Peter Gago at Penfolds. There was one half of one of that country's most enduring double acts, Sarah Pidgeon at Wins, talking Kunawara's Terra Rossa. Plus, uh, focused on Margaret River with Larry Cherubino of Robert Oatley Vineyards. South Africa has also been a focus. Rutger van Wyk at Stark Conde tells us about Stellenbosch Cabernet Sauvignon and also his own inspirational story. Plus, Rollo Gab of Journey's End Winery talks fair trade and what that actually means for wine. And onto the business of selling it, we'll hear from the boss of Majestic Wine, John Colley, who gave us an exclusive interview. That's all to come in our highlights of Series 4. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Peter Gago has been described as a wine rock star, such is the profile that comes with being custodian of one of the world's most famous cuvées, the Grange. This year, 2022, Gago is marking 20 years in the role as chief winemaker at Penfolds, a job that extends well beyond the borders of Australia to Champagne and California. Peter told me about the process of selecting grapes for the Grange, and it's very much a team effort. There are eight, nine of us constantly, sometimes ten. And then, of course, at Harvest, uh, we will, you know, employ... Uh, a couple of people extra to help out when things are just flat chat. But yeah, the Penfold winemaking team really is the essence of the success of Penfolds. You know, the generational passing of the baton, the whole culture of this thing called Penfolds is due to the team. And that's why you'll also notice, David, you know, on the back of any bottle of any of the wines, you'll never see a winemaker signature. I've been asked many times, you know, by marketers across generations, well, you know, a signature on the back. No, 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 it's the Penfold team. Mm. And, um, you know, very, very proud of that culture, which is now, well, 177 years old. So how do the team go about selecting the fruit that's used in the Grange, because I've never quite absolutely understood how you yes. decide where it comes <laughs> from and, yeah. and which fruit you're using. Well, look, I'll, I'll step two or three steps back first. You know, Grange is a great example of Penfolds. Well, it's our flagship example of what we refer to as a multi-regional blend. But at Penfolds, we also make wines from single viticultural regions and also wines from single vineyards or oftentimes even blocks within single vineyards. So because of our size, we're quite sport in many ways. You know, the word terroir or sense of place we have huge acknowledgement and respect of that. But we also make wines from vineyards to a style within a region, or if I can use the word house style of Grange or 707, or for our white wine, for example, our flagship Chardonnay Yatana. So if we use Grange as the case study, um, during harvest, obviously, we don't just pick grapes and then cross our fingers. You know, we, we track all the way back to rows and single vineyards. And we split up the team across different regions. And the winemakers work in cahoots with our, what we call GLOs, grower liaison officers, you know, viticultural uh, internal consultants almost who deal with growers because we get a lot of our fruit from growers, private growers, and then we have our own vineyards as well. But the thing that's a little bit different about making Grange is during the ferment, you know, we take the wine off skins reasonably early and complete the fermentation in barrel off skins. Now that's a very laborious process and you've got to have a pretty good idea that, hang on, that ferment is a contender for something to the style and the quality of our flagship. So we might start off in vineyards with a lot of choice. It then conically gets steered into the winery during harvest 
and vintage, and then the ferments go one way or another. Then we make another brave cooler to the left or to the right in the barrel, American oak in this instance, Quercus alba, and then things ferment. Now, that all ends around late April, May, and in late May or June, all of the barrels, all of the different tanks uh, come into what we refer to as classification tastings. And this was pretty much started by Penfolds. The wines come in and we don't know the vineyard, the volume, or for that matter, even the variety of the wines that have been set aside for Grange, Sononri, Bin 707, RWT, and you start at the top and you work your way down. So when we make the selection, we do so without bias. And there are two biases, emotional biases and financial biases. The emotional being, oh, you know the growers, you've worked with them for generations and or, you know, they're friends or whatever. Well, no, no, none of that. You don't know which wine is theirs. Uh, the financial biases, it would suit us if all of the fruit that was going to go into the blend came off our own vineyards and save us a lot of money. But again, the wine is selected, if I can use the expression, organoleptically blind, purely by sight, smell and taste. And that wow. is what is selected. It keeps us honest. Um, I'm sure the accountants, and even for that matter, the board <laughs> don't approve sometimes. Because I'm sure they don't. That's, no. <laughs> why, that's why the volume of Grange varies year to year, because we don't know at this point of time what the volumes of what we've selected it might be. And that's why, the, you know, quite on the percentage of Cabernet that goes into Grange varies year to year, because some of the contending material might not even be Shiraz or Syrah. So, um, yeah, look, it's, it's a method that we've used and we still use it and we still advocate its use and when we've gone through Grange, Sononri, RWT, we're then into the bins 389 and we work our way down and we sort of finish at a Canunga Hill level and um, then we do it also for the whites. Now some things are preordained of course you know our McGill Estate Shiraz is a Penfold monopole it's a 5.2 hectare vineyard nothing else can go into it but I often joke even our McGill Estate single vineyard Shiraz is still a blend. And it's a blend from the different blocks of that vineyard. Anything from five to eight different ferments of fruit picked across two or three days. And we'll quite often relegate a ferment or two and we might even elevate one ferment. You know, quite often a little bit of McGill might make it into Grange. So, you know, it's a very different way of winemaking in that regard. But the techniques, you know, in crushing and pressing fermentation are quite idiosyncratic as well. And that's what people refer to when they refer to the Penfold stamp. It's a style, you know, Grange, you, you pick these red wines of Penfolds firstly as being Penfolds. And then if you know the styles reasonably well, oh, that's, you know, that's a great 389 and that's a wonderful bin 128 or, gee, Sinonri's looking good this year, you know, and, and people almost even without looking at the label will identify those styles year in, year out. And it's a style that is expanding beyond Australia. I mentioned in the introduction, there's a champagne, there are the uh, California uh, collection wines. Uh, why have you decided to do that? Yeah, look, it's, I think it's a, almost a natural progression. You know, the then family-owned um, company back in the mid-1800s, Dr Christopher Rawson Penfold and his wife Mary, for a long time had the winery, the spiritual home of Penfolds at McGill Estate, and all the vineyards around it and into the foothills were our vineyards. But then demand outstripped supply, and they had to go to the south. They ventured to McLaren Vale. They went to the north. In 1901, 110 years ago, they ventured to the Barossa Valley, you know, after their time, of course, you know, forebearers of theirs. So bit by bit, um, we spread out of McGill Estate and even for that matter, out of the Barossa and other regions in South Australia. For that matter, you know, our, our flagship white Yatana is blended even nowadays across four states of Australia. So it's something that started in the 1800s. Back in 2006, we left the mainland of Australia, and ventured south to Tasmania, the island state of Tasmania for Chardonnay fruit, Yatana. 
So I guess it wasn't a huge, figuratively speaking, leap of faith to jump across the Pacific uh, into California. In fact, that project, although we only released the first quartet of wines back in March of the last year, 2021, we started that endeavour in the late 80s back in California when we took a half share in the Geyser Peak Winery in Sonoma. And then it was in the 90s that we planted vineyards at Kamada Hills just outside of Paso Robles. So yeah, back in 2021, we released the first of our wines out of California. Now, why are we doing that? Well, we still have huge issues getting A1 grade, what I call A1 grade, and we call A1 grade, Cabernet out of Australia. We, we just cannot find enough fruit to satisfy the demand for not only bin 707, our flagship Cabernet, but even bin 169, our French oak matured Cabernet out of Coonawarra. You know, we just can't get enough of that material. And in the Napa Valley, of course, wonderful Cabernet. And uh, why not avail ourselves of that? And, you know, even into France, we now are operating in Bordeaux. Our parent company bought a winery and vineyards and uh, watch this space. Exciting times ahead. So maybe if it had been another winery, you'd sort of think, well, what are they doing? Are they just buying discrete separate wineries that they operate independently? No, in this instance, Penfolds is putting this material, this fruit, through a Penfold lens and continuing to make wines to style, albeit with fruit sourced from different vineyards, from different states, and now even from different countries. Peter Gago on the march of Penfolds around the world. Sticking with Australia and another leading light, Sarah Pidgeon is one half of one of the country's most enduring double acts. Together with her colleague of more than 20 years, Sue Hodder, Sarah has been at Wins in Coonawarra for almost a quarter of a century. Jointly, they are great ambassadors for Coonawarra, a remote region celebrated for its famous Terra Rossa soils. As you said, David, it's, it is a, a quite a remote wine region here in Australia. It's right in the very southern corner of South Australia. So central and south is, uh, is where you need to have your mind's eye. If you know roughly where Adelaide is, we're around 400 kilometres south of Adelaide. Um, and then if you were to head over and continue driving for another 500 kilometres to the east, you would make your way to Melbourne. So we're kind of, we're in between Adelaide and Melbourne, quite equidistant, but quite remote from both those places as well. Uh, so a, a very southerly location, which of course gives us quite a cool climate on the most southern bit of the, the mainland here in South Australia. I mentioned those famous Terra Rossa soils. Tell us uh, about those soils. Yes, so it's, it's quite, it is unique, quite a rare type of soil. It's a red clay. I think a lot of people think of Australia and they think of the red dirt, that iconic uh, red that is often associated with landscapes here in Australia. But this is quite a rare red cracking clay that, that's quite unique and it doesn't occur in many places. Uh, and so this little scrap of uh, red terra rossa over a limestone base is it's quite a narrow little strip here in Coonawarra. It runs around 20 kilometres long and it's quite narrow, one kilometre wide, um, and in some places uh, narrower than that. Uh, and that's the strip of terra rossa soil that really has become so famous in the world and, and really gives a, a uniqueness to the red grapes that we grow here. And uh, tell us how that uh, terra rossa uh, does that, how it influences uh, the, the wines in the way that it does. Yes, well, this, this will get a little sound a little nerdy but um, it's it's all to do I believe with the way it holds water it's a beautiful type of clay that is quite free draining when when the rains first hit it's it's got properties where uh, as I said it's a cracking clay so it it can allow the excess water to drain quite freely so so your vines don't get too bogged down uh, with heavy water and heavy soil straight away. So it's got a, a property of draining in the first instance. And then at the other end of the, of the rainy season, when soils start to dry out as, as uh, spring turns into summer, it dries out quite slowly. 
Um, and so I think it's this slow easing of the vineyards into a wet phase and then again into a dry phase that has something that particularly relates to high quality grapes, in particular Shiraz and Cabernet seem to have an affinity with this. And of course, Cabernet Sauvignon is the thing that we've become most famous for. So those qualities of the way that the soil allows the, the vineyards to grow, coupled with our unique climates and, and our warmer days and cool nights that we experience here, I think hold a key to our flavours. You mentioned Cabernet there, and uh, it's fair to say, although I know Shiraz uh, certainly historically has a, a really important role, Cabernet is king, right? Cabernet is absolutely what we've become known for. Uh, and you're quite right. Historically, with the first plantings back in the 1880s, uh, both those varieties were held in the same regard for a long time. And really, it was in the 90s where it started to split and the, and the reputation for Cabernet started to grow. Uh, it's not to say that the Shiraz is not good quality. I just think that there are more places in the world and especially in Australia that can make beautiful Shiraz styles. It's such a chameleon of a grape that can grow beautifully in different styles around Australia. But Cabernet is harder. There's there's only a few unique places that can, can really uh, make truly uh, world-class Cabernet from Australia here. And Coonawarra is, is definitely one of those. You mentioned a bit about the climate uh, earlier on when you were describing uh, Coonawarra. Uh, so for Cabernet, uh, you mentioned that it's it's cooler than many other places, uh, uh, many other Australian wine regions. Um, obviously, uh, you need uh, plenty of sun and warmth for Cabernet to ripen, don't you? So uh, just talk about how the, the climate there uh, suits Cabernet. Yes, so the unique thing about the the temperatures and the weather here is uh, is to do with what happens off the coast near us. So Coonawarra is a little bit inland. It's about 80 kilometres to the nearest coastline. But uh, but the, the coast near us during summer has extremely cold waters. Um, and if you were to look at a temperature graph you, uh, that, that had the uh, te- a temperature map of the ocean around where we are, around Robe and Beachport, where Coonawarra is, uh, the temperature of that water is a good five degrees cooler at this time of year than the temp- the temperatures around Adelaide, just 400 kilometres to the north. So if you wanted to go to our beautiful beaches and have a swim, the Adelaide beaches are much more comfortable <laughs> to swim in at this time of year. Uh, it's cool, cool water off the coast here. And that relates to then cold breezes that come through. So even when we've got gorgeous summer days, uh, clear, bright days and and a nice amount of of warmth for our growing season, it always cools down at night and you need a jumper at this time of year uh, in the peak of our growing season, right when we're getting ready for our our grapes to develop all their flavours. And again, I think that's something unique. Uh, doesn't happen in many places, that that difference between the, the warm days and, and the cool nights right at this time of year in this summertime heading into autumn that we're experiencing now. I think it gives us a certain brightness and freshness to the fruit when it does come time to harvest. I was going to say that diurnal range is going to be absolutely fantastic for acidity, isn't it? Yes, yes, it, it is. I think it relates to acidity and overall balance and brightness in our wines. And that must help a lot uh, when the climate crisis uh, is something that is uh, on all our minds at the moment. Yes, uh, and we're certainly in no ways climate deniers here, but we do feel very blessed to have a a certain buffer against the effects of what is happening around us and uh, it's definitely true that the last two decades have been slowly warming here we have a lot of temperature data to show that but we feel like we're able to continue to grow high quality Cabernet Sauvignon here because of this unique uh, opportunity we've got with with the cool nights in particular. And of course, um, I'm sure this is a bit hackneyed, uh, me saying this, but there are parallels from what you describe uh, with that uh, maritime influence um, with Bordeaux, aren't there? Yes, that is um, uh, often a a comparison that we can make when we're, we're trying to describe our climate. And of course, Bordeaux has a lot of Cabernet planted there, so that it makes sense that they yeah. um, have, have a similarity in that way. 
I'm always a bit wary of uh, drawing these uh, parallels with the, the great uh, French regions because there, there is obviously um, so much uh, beyond those um, great uh, French uh, regions. But let, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, wins uh, because the foundations were laid down by uh, John Riddick, an entrepreneur um, who uh, recognised uh, what you've uh, been describing for us, the Terra Rossa soils and uh, built this uh, winery. Um, his image, I think, still adorns um, the, the bottles uh, from the image of the winery. And I think your top name is, uh, top wine is named in his honour. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So John, John Riddick was uh, a Scottish settler. He made his fortune on the goldfields initially, not, not gold panning, but, but trading with, with the people who, who were panning for gold over in Victoria. Uh, and he would travel between South Australia and, and Victoria trading and, uh, in goods that uh, the gold miners did need. Uh, and then he used that money to purchase a, a large tract of land here in South Australia that uh, encompassed what was to become Coonawarra. And so when he had, had this parcel of land, he was one of the first to recognise this little rise in, in the landscape, which um, it was, was sticking out of the of the wetter soils either side. Of course, that became where the original highway came because because it was higher and, and a, a more stable place to put a road. So some of the best Terrarossa soil is, in fact, right under our major highway, often <laughs> the um, ironic way in, in early development. But but he, he saw that this was a, a different soil and unique and he worked very closely with his head gardener William Wilson to to figure out what kind of crops could be put on this fruit colony that that he had a vision for so they planted uh, stone fruits and a lot of other crops as well and did lots of test planting as well as the the original grape varieties that they planted there in the 1880s he had a lot of a lot of things going on a lot of ideas he um, he did all that test planting he Proposed the the uh, the fruit colony and the and the smaller parcels of land to be sold off to settlers. Built the winery, built a built a railway. He did a lot in a in a short few decades there. So that's John Riddick. Uh, where do the winds come in then? You have to fast forward a good fifty years um, to when the the Wynn family then purchased the winery. And so if you think about it, there's a bit of a gap there in the history with some massive world events that occurred, two world wars, um, a Great Depression. There was a lot of things impeding the progress of a, of a new region like Coonawarra um, in those 50 years in between John Riddick's era and when the Wynn family came on board. And really, 1950s in Australia was a renaissance in a lot of wine regions, including Coonawarra. This was when people were just recovering enough from the, the war and, uh, to be able to consider uh, getting back onto the ideas of businesses like wine. And uh, and they, the Wynn family were the family that had this vision to take this beautiful old winery and uh, and make the wines as we know them now. Sarah Pidgeon on the history and terroir at Wynn's Coonawarra. We marked Australia Day back in January with another leading light from that country's wine industry, Larry Cherubino, Director of Winemaking at Robert Oatley, and also Katie McCauley, who began her career hand-selling Australian wines in a shop in southwest London and is now its brand ambassador. Famous for its Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon, Margaret River in Western Australia was our focus. Well, obviously, Margaret River's um, located in the southern, the southwestern corner of Western Australia. To put Western Australia, well, that whole region, if you include Margaret River in the Great Southern, which is primarily all the grape-growing regions and the geograph and everything, it's probably one and a half times the size of Belgium in terms of a region, in terms of the, the region um, together. You know, Western Australia is bigger than Texas. I think the UK fits into Western Australia about 11 times. It's a big, big state, um, but it's that southern corner um, that verges on the Indian Ocean and the Southern Ocean, which makes Margaret River really quite a unique uh, grape growing environment. It's, it's, it's maritime, it's primarily a maritime, and uh, all the grape growing and viticulture sort of is focused um, about 10, you know, zero to, you know, 20 k's inland from the coast. 
along that um, along that uh, stretch of Margaret River. It's 100 kilometres long by about 10 kilometres wide, which is roughly the area the size of Bordeaux in terms of a region, but it's you know it's probably only 10% or 5% planted. There's just not a lot of vineyard. Uh, the industry is relatively small by South Australian standards or McLaren Vale standards, but it has it produces you know 5% of Australia, less than 5% of Australia's wine as you know the whole state, but it's uh, producing greater than 50% of the premium wine coming out of this country. So it's got a great reputation um, alongside Margaret River in terms of excitement, it's, it's there. But we occupy a very specific part of the market because we're a long way away from anywhere. We don't have the economies. You know, importantly, there's just not, we don't have an, a, a massive overabundance of production. And in the last five years, Margaret River Chardonnay has just shot to, you know, another level um you know people are really really focusing on it we've really niched carved out a really definitive style in this country it's got a lovely the chardonnay that you refer to i was tasting a, a couple of your um chardonnays last night including um uh, finisterre which will be uh, familiar to um uh, customers uh, in the uk because it's uh, um, uh, quite widely available and, and very well priced for the, the quality uh, in the bottle. Um, tell us about um, why Chardonnay does so well uh, in Margaret River. Uh, look, again, it, it gets back to um, that maritime climate. So you have moderate, you know, in the peak of summer, you'll have, you know, temperatures of low to mid 30s, and that's about as hot as it can get. You do have, obviously, we can have peaks of temperature, but by 10 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock at night, um, you know, we're back down to well below 20s in the peak of summer and even cooler than that, depending on how far south you are. So you tend to get these really great expressions of Chardonnay flavour, but they've got the acidity to, to match up with that. So you, you're getting great flavour at moderate, moderate to low alcohol levels, but matched with really good, clean, crisp acidity. And, um, you know, Chardonnay, Chardonnay must have flavour and it must have acidity and you know when you get the two working well together it's just a, it's such a fantastic combination it's why i like to drink it you know importantly and, and and what i've seen happen around the world is that australia is a dry environment it's a dry climate it's relatively we get rep, moderately high rainfall in margaret river but we've always been been dealing with really dry you know growing seasons particularly around harvest we're really good at managing that. Um, our viticulture has been adapted to that. And, and as, a, as a consequence, I think we've been really consistent in, in being able to ride that through a year in and year out, depending on you know, whether we have a wet season or dry season. We're, we're very good viticulturally at you know, maintaining a particular fruit profile and style. You know, I could get into you know, climate change and I could get into you know, what I see happening in other parts of Europe, particularly with Chardonnay, and, you know, in warmer years, I just see um, probably not what I normally would expect to see out of some of these regions because we're much better and have adapted over a long period of time dealing with, you know, warmer climates. I was struck uh, tasting your uh, Chardonnay wines uh, by the kind of teasing restraint uh, relative to some other um, Australian Chardonnays I, I can think about in the same sort of price bracket. Um, uh, so, so are you, is that a very, uh, well, firstly, is that a fair observation? And, and secondly, um, is that a, um, a very deliberate approach in terms of the way you, you make the wines? Yeah, look, I, I really like, and I, that teasing restraint, that's a, that's a really nice way of putting it. And I think it sort of relates to what I said earlier about being able to manage, you know, we, we don't want for sunshine, we don't want for maturity and sugar, we don't want for any of that. And what we tend to do is we actually have to, you know, we got to work backwards to make sure that we pick at exactly the right time where we get that balance of acidity and balance of flavour in the field. You know, once we get those wines into the wine, you know, those juices and those grapes into the winery, you know, there's not a lot of exploitation or things going on to really work up to a style. We've more or less got it and we can sort of maintain that. And and that's what I like doing. You know, I, I really I really like wines that sort of sit on that edge of having, you know, great flavour and great texture and, and great acidity without without being, you know, 
the volume turned up too loud because you tire of that um, very quickly. And what about Oak? Because it's very nicely integrated. Um, it's very much there. Uh, like most wine lovers, I suppose I have a, a love-hate relationship with Oak in that I absolutely adore it, especially with Chardonnay when it's done properly. And of course, it can uh, when, it's, when it's not or when there's too much of it, it really does get in the way. Um, again, the teasing yeah. restraint is, is there. I'm glad you like that, those words. Um, uh, what, tell me about the way you work with Oak. Uh, we, I love it. I love oak, and I think um, uh, a lot of it, a lot of the, a lot of the approach to you know oak is changing. It's really obviously it's very expensive uh, to use it, and depending on where the wine sits, but you know it's a really important part of our winemaking style. I think for us, um, sometimes you spend that much time and energy and money on different coopers that you almost can't see it. And in fact, the more the more money, it's like that teasing restraint. You know, the the, the best oak from the best uh, forests is almost it's almost invisible. Um, and that's that's more or less how we look at oak. And you know, some you know uh, you know some of our best wines they do have a fairly large percentage of new oak. But again, we're really really selective about what that oak is doing to the wine. And it's not about um, it's not about flavour impact and it's not necessarily about um, the way the wine smells, it's all about the texture that that oak provides to the wine. And Katie, uh, let's bring you in here because in the time that you've been uh, working uh, with uh, uh, these these wines, not just the Robert Oakley wines, but uh, uh, wines from Australia more generally, um, you must have seen the relationship with oak evolve quite significantly. Definitely. I mean, to Larry's point, um, or going back to my original Chardonnay that I first tasted in 1987, um, you know, that was full on. Um, I suspect it would have been um, very new American oak. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Larry, I don't even know if they had oak chips in those days. Um, but uh, I think over the years, and this actually is 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 um, probably the mantra for the whole of the Australian wine industry, is over the last 30 years, everything has got more refined. So understanding of your vineyard site, your soil, understanding of grape clones, understanding of oak and how to use it. I think the um, Larry's generation, the younger generation of um, winemakers have traveled the world and see how other people use oak and you know look to other coopers, look to other forests. Um, so I think everything has gone from quite full on in those days, which was actually the way to burst into a market. And then over the next 30 years, it's been about refining every single thing that you do. And so that you get to a point of elegance and complexity and structure in the wines. Katie McCauley, brand ambassador for Robert Oatley. And also before that, Larry Cherubino, director of winemaking. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. His wines are called Journey's End, but Rollo Gab is still on that journey with an impressive portfolio of wines seen on restaurant lists and also on supermarket shelves, showcasing the diversity and quality not to mention the incredible value that South Africa can deliver for a wine lover. Some of his flagship wines are also Fair Trade branded. So to mark Fair Trade Fortnight, I asked him what that label actually meant. Well, Fair Trade really for us is a global benchmark uh, on um, treatment of uh, principally uh, your team, but also the product itself. And there are many certifications uh, within South Africa and I presume in the, in the world uh, that cover different ethical criteria. Um, we as a farm are um, WETA certified, which is an ethical trading association, IPW, which is about um, sustainability um, and fair trade for us is, is really the most recognized for a UK consumer perspective on um, on a fair practice, fair labour practice, and 
um, a decent, clean product. So it's not purely about your workforce. The fair trade uh, audits and requirements cover everything from soil and water management, pest management, environmental management, labor conditions, um, um, uh, uh, how you pay your staff, look after your staff, uh, and um, energy and greenhouse gas emissions. So we're audited right across the board uh, in order to be certified fair trade. So it's not purely about looking after your workforce. Okay, so you get a, a visit, do you? You get kind of inspectors come or, or something like you that? Have an annual, you have an annual audit, correct, where you get, I believe the audit is annually, sorry, I have a, um, um, my compliance officer manages the audit, but you have an audit where they come and they audit your farm, they check uh, everything uh, and they go through all your files, all your um, payslips, all your conditions. They audit everything from... Uh, the way uh, your team come to the farm, uh, what do they travel in? Uh, do they have a nice canteen uh, for lunch? Are there is everyone paid well? Uh, and and so it's um, yeah, it's a very detailed, very um, solid audit, which also covers traceability of your product, the sourcing of your fruit, contracts, um, employment contracts with your team. Uh, so it's very rigorous, um, very detailed, and um, that is why uh, it is uh, the benchmark, um, the global benchmark, in my view. I mentioned in the introduction the incredible value that South Africa offers the wine lover. And when I say value, I always say it's one of those things that's sometimes misunderstood. I don't mean cheap. I mean, you know, what you get for your money. That's value. And how do you ensure that... Um, when you're delivering value to the consumer, which you undoubtedly do with your wines, um, how are you doing that uh, without it being at the expense of the people who make the wines? Yes, well, um, I think for us, um, we're lucky in, in having a business which functions well. Uh, we have a happy team and for me, on my side, I like um, looking after the team. Uh, everyone in the team is a family member, effectively. Um, we uh, don't need to report to other big industrial um, you know, corporations or anything. We are a family business. We're looking very, very long term. And with that um, and with um, the, the business hopefully growing, performing well, we're able to really look after our team. We give good bonuses if the company does well. Uh, we pay well above industry standard for all our vineyard workers and cellar workers. Um, and they really are, um, in my view, uh, looked, after, look, looked after well um, and are, are proud to be part of Journey's End. And uh, that certification, the fair trade label, which we're used to seeing on you know, coffee, bananas, I suppose, you know, fruit and veg. Um, it's a, a very familiar, very powerful logo. Not all of your wines um, carry that uh, logo. W why is that? Yeah, so the reason for that is we, we as a business um, feel uh, or, or believe that we go way, way, way beyond fair trade or any fair trade criteria as far as looking after our team, uh, our vineyards uh, and our broader community. Uh, the fair trade logo uh, on bottles of wine for me uh, uh, works uh, well and uh, is recognised by consumers shopping for wines in retail uh, and in UK retailers. Um, and co-op themselves have really driven that message where 100% of their South African range is fair trade now uh, and carries the logo. However, the logo itself does not benefit our team. So uh, in order to uh, use the logo or apply the logo to your product, you pay 2% uh, or thereabouts to Fairtrade, uh, to their offices in um, Holland, but it doesn't actually benefit our team. So moving on to our on-trade and restaurant trade products, we feel that with the restaurant sector, People are less um, 
driven to buy a wine which has a Fairtrade logo on the label. Uh, we can state that the wine is Fairtrade on the back label very happily without having to pay 2% to the uh, Journey's End, um, you know, for the Journey's End logo use. As a business, our drive for fair trade was um, really because it is broadly recognised uh, and it is um, uh, another a way of demonstrating our criteria as a champion of all things ethical, sustainable, uh, and the fact that we are really driven to be a force for good. But there are numerous other things we do for our workers which fall outside of fair trade such as all their uh, children's school fees if they want them to go to higher education uh, anyone's medical needs and medical care bonuses funeral care uh, we do um, uh, numerous things and then going into our broader community we have the journey zen foundation which part funded a new school hall in our local township which is a huge and very smart building and we also currently deliver 28,000 meals a week for people most at need in our local community. And we've been doing that since August 2020. So uh, I think we passed the million meal mark three or four months ago. So did you set up the foundation in August 2020 we as a result of the pandemic? That's correct. So as a result of the COVID pandemic, uh, my good friend Ken Forrester, um, who I was speaking to on Zoom, I couldn't get to South Africa, and uh, he said the real threat was starvation, uh, and starvation uh, literally on all of our doorsteps because the entire hospitality industry was shut, the wine industry was in disrepair, there was no tourism, and these are massive drivers of employment in the Western Cape, and with no government support, um, there is a real risk of extreme hunger. So we created, as a result of the COVID pandemic, the Journey Zen Foundation and set about with uh, eight fantastic women um, building uh, a network of soup kitchens. Uh, and we supply the gas, the ingredients, the veggies uh, daily. Uh, and these ladies beaver away, work away and deliver uh, each week. Uh, every two weeks we get the report and we average between 26 and 28,000 meals a week currently. I was going to say, you clearly have a, a you know an immense um, uh, love for South Africa. Uh, your father obviously does too. Um, it's such an incredibly beautiful place as we've discussed. And yet um, there is, when you go there, such searing inequality uh, on show anywhere you look um yeah. you know it, it is it's it is for someone who's not been before it's it's who might come from uh, the uk for example genuinely shocking um do you think there's any hope uh, that the inequality there can somehow be um righted in a way that's that's fair and, and hopefully reasonably harmonious it would be amazing to see that happen i think the government um now under Ramaphosa, are really trying um, to rid uh, the country of corruption, which I think is one of the root causes of uh, this extreme poverty. South Africa as a country should be a very rich country. It's got unbelievable agricultural land. It's got amazing resources under the ground. It's got a good workforce. It's got brains there. Um, it's got a wonderful climate, wonderful tourism. It, 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 it should be a very, very, very rich country. And step one is to um, remove uh, corruption, which is hopefully in process. Uh, and, um, and then, I mean, for us as wine farmers, we do everything we, we can. Um, we are farming, in my view, in a very British way. Um, uh, uh, as, as if we're a family farm where your team members are your family. We sit around the table regularly. We have Christmas parties together. We, we really look out for each other if someone's down or sad or in trouble or needs help. We're absolutely in there to help, help them um, and to really help not just them, but their families as well.
and um, uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, if employees in general all worked in that similar way, which maybe more of a European or British way of running businesses, then the country would start moving to a better place. Stellenbosch is South Africa's largest and undoubtedly its most famous wine region, home to more than a third of the Cape's wineries. It's also the celebrated epicentre of the country's Cabernet Sauvignon production. Rudger van Wyk is a winemaker at Stark Conde in Stellenbosch, a celebrated producer of Cabernet Sauvignon, and he has a story to inspire. I went to study at the University of Stellenbosch, winemaking. Um, so my middle brother actually did that first and introduced me to wine. Um, you know, uh, alcohol has always been part of our family, um, get-togethers more or less. So as I grew up, um, you know, beers and spirits is probably the way to come together and have fun. And uh, wine was a very interesting subject for me. Um, it combined science with farming. My father really loved farming. Um, he always wanted us to become a farmer or own a farm um, in the future. And uh, I thought, you know, <laughs> I wasn't really into the cattle farming or the vegetable farming. So I thought, well, not why don't we combine science with farming and, and winemaking led me uh, to that choice. And also my mother is still uh, very religious, um, sometimes not very happy of my career path in winemaking. She thought that, you know, I would um, not consume alcohol and go the right route. Um, but we still have, up until today, a lot of um, very good arguments <laughs> when it comes to paying the bills and etc. Well, I'm sure she's uh, extremely proud of you as well. One of your great achievements was um, earning yourself uh, a kind of, I, I want to say a bursary, but I don't know if that's the correct word, but a kind of a program uh, operated by the Cape Wine Guild. And that saw you going to Burgundy, didn't it? Yes. So, um, you know, in my studies at the University of Stellenbosch, the passion really grew. And uh, in my third year, we were approached by the Cape Winemakers Guild, a very good or massive initiative on helping people um, from disadvantaged areas or you know livelihoods and uh, i managed to get a spot to go and harvest in burgundy in 2015 and actually a week prior to that uh, a position opened at stock on wines um, as assistant winemaker so it was like two flies in, in like you know <laughs> very very lucky to have got the position at stock Conde and actually go to burgundy after that and who were your mentors in terms of winemaking so I must say, I think uh, Aubrey Bieslar from uh, Kanonkop Wine Estate, very historical wine estate in South Africa or in Stellenbosch, um, he played a massive role. They specialize in Garbani Sauvignon too, Bordeaux blends, Pinotage. And then after that, I actually went to Durbanville, which is more cool, coastal, um, and they specialize in Sauvignon Blanc. So um, a lot less smaller, it's more garagiste style of winemaking. And uh, the thought behind that was, uh, you know, as a youngster, I wanted to gain experience as much as possible um, from different areas, different ways of thinking, different styles of winemaking. And yes, I think that played a massive role up until where I am today. And there's an interview with you uh, on Jantis's site uh, where you say uh, somewhere down the interview uh, that um, working at wine shows, uh, you were misjudged for a runner for ice or someone who works in the tasting room that was the perception that the general consumer had of me while i was pouring them a glass of wine you say it's a really obviously very striking line in in that uh, interview uh, piece with you has that changed at all um yeah i think uh, after that article with jenses um, um things took a positive spin but you know i i i think Always we talk about it in the winery that the proof is in the pudding and uh, people should judge me by my winemaking. And I think that has recently happened. Uh, it has changed. The narrative has changed. Uh, but, you know, I, I try to focus on, on the positives. I like working with people and meeting new people. And a lot of people come up to me these days and just say they've had a very delicious bottle of wine. Um, and that makes my heart very warm and happy. Good. Well, um, I will judge you by your wines because I was uh, lucky enough to taste uh, three of them 
uh, the night before last, and uh, they're, they're excellent. So let's talk about um, Stellenbosch. Uh, for those who have been there, they won't forget Stellenbosch in a hurry. It's beautiful. But uh, for those who haven't been there, uh, then just give us a little description. Talk about the uh, geography and, and what makes winemaking there so special. Yeah, like, geez, where do I start? I think uh, Stellenbosch is in the heart of the winelands. Like I said, I've always had a dream to be making wine in Stellenbosch um, while I was studying in the University of Stellenbosch. It's a very special place. I think South Africa in general is a very special place. We have a lot of um, beautiful nature spots or areas that just makes us totally different to the global context. Um, Stellenbosch per se, um, yeah, it has all different type of elements. Um, you have unique soil types, we have oceanic influences, we have uh, a lot of valleys and mountain influences, and um, that all that whole complex mosaic uh, influences has a massive influence on our um, production of premium wines in our country. And it has, uh, obviously, an amazing climate for wines, but as I understand it, it has some of the least fertile soil anywhere in South Africa. Tell us, uh, for those who don't uh, know why that's a good thing, uh, tell us why bad soil in terms of fertility is good for Cabernet. Yeah, you know, um, if I can use the analogy, I, I, I recently had, a, two years ago, a newborn, my first newborn child. Um, and, you know, I've come to notice, even from my own livelihood, that if you just have that balance of just struggling a little bit that you learn from your mistakes and your lessons and, and you actually prosper in your future in divorce. Um, and I think that's quite similar to, to our vineyards. Um, look, Stellenbosch um, in general, I think, has uh, predominantly a lot of decomposed granite, granitic soils um, from the table or uh, table mountain that we have in Cape Town. So I also wanted to say that uh, South Africa in a whole has some of the world's most ancient soils. So you have this pure expression um, from different varietals, especially Carbonis Sauvignon, that you have here that makes it very distinctive from the Napa or uh, Europe. And what about the Yonkers Hook Valley? What makes that uh, so special for your uh, signature grape variety, Cabernet Sauvignon? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm always very excited working with Yonkers Hook. We are a very unique area here. Um, we're based in a in a, a valley of in between mountains. Um, a lot of decomposed granite swells here. Look, our our estate is it starts with 150 meters above sea level and it goes right up to about 590 meters above sea level. We have several different aspects. I really think like this is the true definition of terroir. You've probably heard a lot of winemakers and wine scholars talk about terroir, um, and those different elements that I just mentioned. It all comes together here in the valley and it gives me a great opportunity to express this valley and in Cabernet Sauvignon itself. One of your top wines, uh, one of those that, uh, in fact, the one I, I enjoyed the most, I think, uh, Oud Nectar, a uh, very high scoring wine. It's done so well in so many competitions around the world. Um, it comes from what you describe as an elevation vineyard. Um, just explain um, what that elevation is and, and why that uh, makes a difference. Yes, so Oro Nectar is a very, very special vineyard. Um, I always like taking people up there. It's about 590 meters above sea level. It's westerly facing. Um, and as many of us know that the higher you go up in elevation, um, the cooler it becomes. But also what makes that block so very special is it's the coolest block of Carbonet on our estate, but it receives about 20 or 30 minutes more sunlight hours on average per day. So you basically have this great combination of warm weather or cooler weather with a lot of sunlight radiation that actually gives it a longer time ripening period. And we want that because, um, you know, the old analogy, low and slow in, in, in the kitchen um, develops more flavor and aromatics. And that's precisely what happens here. It's a very unique wine, a very unique site. The soils there are also unique. The higher we go, we get a bit more uh, quartz and sandstone. So the, the vineyard is very stony. Um, and that actually brings out that tight, firm tannins that we have and a very nice, um, fresh acidity 
um, that actually for me makes that wine very Bordeaux-esque or, or old world in style. It's a very uh, polished wine and uh, it's also, uh, I mean, there's, it's, it's very tightly wound. There's a huge amount of um, a kind of fruit depth and complexity there, but it's also very accessible uh, for something that uh, is, is uh, relatively young. Uh, we're so used to, you know, historically um, uh, Bordeaux, uh, varieties uh, that you know, producing wines that you you can't access very quickly. Um, so is that something uh, that you've set out to do to make things to make wines that are um, uh, accessible early? Look, I think um, it's very critical in 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 times that we are living in today. Uh, a lot of people are buying or purchasing wines that they immediately want to drink. Um, sometimes I even struggle, you know, to put away some of these wines because they're just so da- damn delicious. So, yes, I think I, the important part is to make wines that are um, relatively approachable in their youth, but also the focus should be on, you know, aging wines and, and the development of tertiary flavors. That's very critical for me. I think, you know, when it comes to a fine wine, you have to have that great combination of fruit power, but also that savory characteristics that just um, elevates the wine and, and makes it more complex. Rutger van Wyk at Stark Conde talking about his beloved Cabernet Sauvignon. Finally, for this Highlights episode, a relatively rare interview with the boss of Majestic Wine, John Colley, a veteran of B&Q and Screwfix, as well as Majestic, He returned to the company to save the day after its disastrous marriage to Naked Wines. He spoke to me with admirable candour about that ill-fated pairing and why he thinks he has the best job in retail. When I first joined the company in 2015, I was the first outsider who'd actually joined the board. Everybody else that was worked on the board, I mean, Steve Lewis was the former uh, kind of uh, steward of Majestic. And, you know, everybody started in the stores. You know, we've still got some members of the board now that started in the stores as van drivers or assistants. And I was the only one that wasn't WESEC qualified, hadn't worked in the company before. And I just constantly kept getting asked by colleagues, you know, how did you get this job? You don't know anything about wine. And I said, well, I don't need to really know anything about wine. That's what you guys do. What I need to do is know how to run the business. And there's aspects of what Majestic does with its customer data. You know, we've got over 4 million uh, records of customers that have been shopping with us from over, for over the last 40 years. Um, we've got physical shops. We've obviously, you know, got a home delivery and omni-channel capability now. You know, my background is that um, expertise, whether that was in Argos or Screwfix or, or, or at B&Q. You know, having that knowledge and being able to apply it to business as special as Majestic with a product as fantastic as wide has just been brilliant, you know, and that's why I love my job so much. It's quite a, you know, a glamorous uh, role, I suppose, compared to the uh, literally sort of more nuts and bolts uh, kind of <laughs> roles that you've done previously, I guess. Well, I think whatever you do, you've got to have a passion for it. You know? And I just have a passion for working in great companies. You know, Screwfix, you know, I spent five years. It's a great organization. Very small when I first joined that business. 120 million is now doing two and a half billion. I mean, it's massive. But the customers love that company and they have a real passion for the brand. And I think in Majestic, you know, everybody you meet that has either worked in our stores or in the industry, you know, just they love the business. I think they were very you know, sad at the possibility that it could have actually left left uh, the high street under the kind of that naked marriage. Um, and when we managed to kind of get hold of the business and kind of revitalize it, you know, the amount of, uh, of uh, letters and, and communication I got from customers saying how, how pleased they were was amazing. So I, I like working in businesses that are just loved, you know, and our brand awareness is very high. Our coverage in the UK is very big. Um, and it's just, it's a delight to work in a company that's like that. I don't think there's many companies like Majestic around, which is why I kind of wanted to work in it in the first the first time. Um, and when I came back, clearly it was a bit battered and bruised after the after the kind of the, the naked marriage. But you know the fundamentals of the business were still there, and the passion for our, with with our colleagues was still there. You know, and I'm I'm very proud to be able to run it. Um, and it just happens to be in retail. It just happens to sell a product that, you know, is wine, which is also fantastic. I mean, I was talking to somebody um, in retail last week and I said, I've just got the best job. 
I've just got the best job out there. You know, I work in retail and I work with a great product, with great people, with a brand that's really loved. And not taking any away from the screw fix, the, you know, nuts and bolts, not quite as interesting. Can't enjoy those on a Friday night. No, true. But they do have a similarly engaged workforce in the stores you can kind of um you can feel the enthusiasm from those whether they're passing you over a hammer drill that you've pre-ordered or whether you're in majestic and you're picking up a case of wine you've pre-ordered you you have a similar kind of vibe amongst uh, the teams i think but um as you say it, it is um uh, an amazing brand. I've forgotten uh, precisely, uh, if I ever knew, how many stores you have and what your sort of market impact is. But you can no doubt tell me that quickly. Yeah, I mean, we've, we're sitting at 201 stores. We've opened five in the last uh, 18 months. So even under lockdown, we decided strategically we're going to open more stores. There's about 20 locations in the UK where we don't have stores and we think that it would just be great to have a majestic uh, branch there. So we've opened you know, Henley on Thames, for example. So the, the, the lovely people of Henley have now got a fabulous new store in, in the Waitrose car park. Um, and it's doing incredibly well. We've opened one in Beaconsfield, another you know, prime location which is doing really, really well, uh, one in Nutsford, um, and we've got a few more slated. So, we're, you know, we're planning to open four or five stores over the course of the next four years. And they're really important for our, you know, our strategy um, because we recruit hundreds of thousands of new customers through our stores every year. We don't have a very high cost of customer acquisition. They just come into the stores, which is great. And also the stores are our delivery hubs for, for customers. You know, we deliver um, to the on-trade as well. Um, and you know, for people's parties, so the ability for us to home deliver from our stores is a fun, is a huge strength. And actually, during the pandemic, you know, in 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 twenty, when it was really quite quite worrying, um, they did an amazing job in keeping keeping the people of Britain fueled up with uh, with wine at home. They did indeed. Uh, I never understood when the union of naked wines and online model uh, with a completely different kind of um, ethos, uh, a different way of selling wine, paired up with Majestic Wine, well-known brand, as we've discussed, that's much loved. Um, what on earth was that all about? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that when you look back at what Majestic was, and the reason I wanted to work in Majestic, and I, had, I actually didn't know about the marriage to Naked, but the omni-channel experience or the digital experience that you, you, you got with Majestic actually wasn't that great. You know, we weren't, we were only delivering from the stores pretty much. If you went onto the website, it was a plethora of products and there was no real organization to it. And it was a bit hit and miss of whether you would actually get something because everything was delivered pretty much by the stores. Um, so if you lived in Penzance, for example, you wouldn't be shopping from a shop. You, you know, you wouldn't be able to access the brand. So I think that um, it kind of hit a, hit a ceiling from a, a, a digital perspective. And I think the business was then struggling a little bit. If you, if you think back to when that was in 2014, 15, you know, everybody was really on the kind of the digital bandwagon, must have a website, must home deliver, all those kind of things. And our proposition just wasn't sharp enough. And actually, that's what, what I saw was an opportunity as an outsider going, do you know what, we can really fix this, you know, reasonably quickly. I think that the PLC board of Majestic also thought the same thing. And, you know, Naked was the, you know, were the fastest growing wine businesses online, uh, direct to consumer. Um, and I think that's why they felt the marriage was, would work uh, by merging, you know, the, the knowledge of how Naked set themselves up digitally and, you know, Majestic kind of requiring some of that knowledge. Unfortunately, that meant some aspects of how Naked operate were kind of put into Majestic and they just didn't hit the mark. And, you know, some of our very loyal customers switched off and, you know, weren't interested in some of the things we were doing, you know, changing product ranges, you know, changing the branding on the stores to the kind of the, the kind of, I call it the kind of the naked pink, but, you know, naked's got quite a vibrant blue color and we kind of changed some of our branding to pink. You know, some of the, some of the tone of voice in our publications and some of our direct mail was changed. And I think that just switched off some of our very loyal customers. So I can understand why it was done, um, but clearly it didn't work you know naked customers are very loyal to the naked brand the majestic customers are very loyal to the majestic brand um I, I just think the 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 leveraging of both knowledge sets wasn't absolutely optimized um and i could kind of see that which is you know why i kind of went off and did some other things yeah i mean there was a point if i'm not mistaken where there was a trial where one of the stores was rebranded as naked they took away that majestic brand that is so much uh, uh, it's such a totem, if you like, so, it's so familiar to 
uh, to British wine consumers, but they did trial the idea of, of sticking naked above the door, didn't they? Yeah, that was the Wakefield store. So that went from a kind of our traditional majestic logo to a to a pink logo to a blue naked logo, and I'm glad to say it's gone back to our to our majestic branding um, very very quickly. So yeah, I mean, and you can imagine the kind of the confusion that would also create for colleagues, and the range that was in that store got changed because it it ranged naked wines, and I'm not saying anything you know bad about naked wine products. It's it's a different it's a different proposition. Um, but it's not the wines that our consumers, uh, you know, buy in buy my majestic stores, because we've just got a breadth of you know parcels and you know some fantastic brands there and and some you know brilliant winemakers producing wines for us. So we're a mix of everything, um, from you know champagnes to spirits um, to stickers. So you know that's kind of not what their business model is. You know, they are a subscription business. So the range kind of didn't hit the mark either. And, you know, that that did impact Majestic quite significantly, I think, in kind of the latter years of the naked marriage. Rob Cook, who's our chief commercial officer and the, and the buying team here, did an incredible job in the first Christmas of 1920, which was just before pandemic. Got into the stores very quickly, some of our, some of our old favourites for our customers. And we had an absolute belt of a Christmas that year as we kind of re-engaged our customers and kind of demonstrated, you know, we, we have got the products that you like and you can come in and buy them. And the stores, you know, did an amazing job phoning all those customers that they used to have saying, look, we've got this one back in now. Do you want to come in for Christmas? And we had a, we had a great Christmas. And, and, you know, we've got that buzz back in the shops now as well, which is fab. John Colley, the boss of Majestic Wine, concluding our highlights from Series 4. Series 5 starts next week with a special tribute to the late, great Stephen Spurrier. Uh, So do join us for that. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the highlights. Thank you for listening. And you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.